Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Markets with Pim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. Days after recreational pot became legal in California, Attorney General Jeff Sessions decided to revoke Obama-era guidance that allowed state to states to actually have legal marijuana markets. And here to tell us about this is Asher Tropy, co-founder, chief executive of Tress Capital. Asher Tropy, thank you for being with us. Maybe just tell uh, our listeners, what is Tress Capital and what was your reaction when you heard about this change in uh, the Department of Justice's treatment of uh, legal marijuana? Sure, thanks, Tim. Uh, Trust Capital is a leading strategic venture capital firm dedicated to the cannabis industry. We were founded in 2013, and we were one of the first institutional-grade investment platforms in cannabis, uh, promoting institutionalization of investment in the cannabis space. We have an investment focus, uh, diversified global investing, with a focus on what we consider infrastructure within the space. So, uh, Asher, what was your response to this new uh, overhaul of Obama-era uh, rules or policies that basically have allowed legal legal marijuana and, frankly, the legalization of marijuana and cannabis products uh, to flourish? Right. It definitely supported that. Um, you know, and the, the Cole Memo basically relinquished enforcement to the states under certain conditions. All right. So... The rescission of that guidance really just, it doesn't change policy, leaves the prosecutorial discretion up to the local U.S. attorneys in the states. Now, the attorneys, the U.S. attorneys in the legal states are not exactly incented to do anything different from what they have been doing. I mean, that's political suicide. Um, and in Jeff Sessions' words yesterday, you know, I'm uh, reading from his memo, um, should weigh all relevant considerations for prosec- federal prosecutors who weigh all relevant considerations, including dot, 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 cumulative impact on the community, right? Um, we have seen great effects on communities that have taken up legal cannabis programs. Uh, so we find it to be very unlikely that prosecutors in those states will interfere in regulated markets uh, and businesses which are operating strictly within the confines of those states' um, regulated frameworks. Asher, in other words, you're saying that this should have little or no effect whatsoever on the legal enforcement of uh, marijuana rules and should allow states to uh, maintain jurisdiction uh, and, and, and the ability to make it legal uh, in their locale. Um, so in other words, even with your investments, you see it having little effect. Is that, is that accurate? Uh, with our investments, we are super conservative and you know, we, we, we factor in these types of risks. Um, for example, what you saw in the Canadian markets yesterday, uh, a big drop in Canadian cannabis-related stocks, 
you know, that's natural in a, a very, very frothy uh, public market environment, right? Um, you know, whereas there are certainly much more conservative and more prudent uh, ways to invest in the space, and that's how we do it uh, on behalf of our family office or institutional clients. Have you had any pushback or any comments from any of your investors uh, regarding this move by uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions? Uh, not really. Uh, we we got a couple of phone calls asking about it, and you know, two two uh, two closings that we have on the table right now. Uh, those are both you know uh, heavily moving forward today and uh, uh, post weekend, and that's domestic and international. Asher, have you actually been? buying on any weakness from regulatory jitters? Um, I'd say that uh, we've not been buying. Um, and we we don't acquire publicly traded stocks at the time uh, due to the, you know, the, the way the market is right now. The opportunities um, that are prudent and more safe are on the private side of the market. Um, and so I think the effect that it might have is that it might move the balance a little bit more in our favor in terms of negotiating terms, um, you know, on venture investments uh, and things of that nature. How does the legal cannabis industry bank its money? Sure. Uh, there are over 400 banks, according to FinCEN, um, 300 banks plus 100 credit unions um, from FinCEN data in the fall. Uh, that currently bank the cannabis industry in some way. I personally posit that every major financial banking institution in this country is whether they know it or not. Um, So there are many. The state charter banks, credit unions, are the safer bets um, for people seeking those accounts inside the industry. And, you know, that that sometimes becomes a a strategic point in the space of, you know, knowing which banks uh, work with the space and which don't and really finding the right fit. There are banks currently out there banking. All of our portfolio companies have banking relationships. Um, so, you know, it's definitely one of the key challenges in the space. Yeah. But on the flip side, you know, that, that, is what, that is part of what creates the opportunity that exists, right? right. It's that inefficiency in the market. If, if all that went away and the sky was nice and clear and blue, that would be great, but surely we'd want to position much before that, um, when there is uncertainty, so you're closer to the ground right. and you're less underside risk. Well, Asher, uh, there have been a number of investors that have turned to Bitcoin or blockchain uh, to get around traditional banking structures that might not be uh, uh, so warm toward this industry. Have you done that? Do you see that uh, gaining speed even more? Uh, we are exploring blockchain. Uh, we have not done anything in crypto or blockchain uh, to date, um, but we're in some active conversations uh, in terms of people using those cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, we look at banking, cannabis, the way it is now, as a um, that banking will open up over time, and thus the the issues around banking are almost a you know a secular decline, so to speak. Yeah. Because over time, as the industry grows and it's growing, inevitably 
Yeah. Asher, you're, you're breaking up. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. A fascinating conversation. Asher Tropy, uh, co-founder and chief executive of Trust Capital, um, talking about the cannabis industry at a time when some states like California are legalizing it. And the current Justice Department seems to be uh, moving in the opposite direction and tightening the screws a bit. Coming up, politics, policy and power and law. Uh, Amy Morris, uh, what do you have on tap today? How the president's lawyers threatened the publisher of Fire and Fury with legal action if they released the book. The publisher responded by releasing it early this morning. And we're going to find out what it might mean for the administration's agenda. Well, that's coming up. Politics, policy, power and law. You don't want to miss it. So much going on in Washington uh, that is important to keep track of. This is Bloomberg. For years, the iPhone and other smartphones have been engines of dollars, a cash minting machine. This industry has been, but there have been a series of developments, not least of which is a saturation in the market. But now the news that uh, perhaps the chips might be compromised, the batteries have had issues that are leading to questions about how much more steam there is here. With us is Shira Ovide, technology columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly, he wrote a column about Apple, uh, in particular, uh, looking at the specific news about them replacing a battery that had been flawed and how bravo for them that they finally told people, albeit a year after they should have. Uh, but this could be bad for their business in a way that perhaps people are not taking into account. Can you explain? Yeah. So the, in December, Apple essentially said that they had made a software change more than a year ago that did a couple things. So on phones that had older, worn out batteries, it slowed down the processing power on purpose so that those phones didn't shut off unexpectedly, which was um, behavior that some phones had been doing and it was very bad. Uh, but Apple said basically they didn't they weren't really forthcoming about this trade-off of um, power and performance, and they should have been. They apologized in a kind of Apple not quite apology way, and they um, did something unusual, which is for the rest of this year, Apple has said that on affected phones, which are kind of one to three years year old iPhones, it's going to replace batteries for $29 instead of the usual price, which is $79. So this is a pretty big deal. And you're taking them up on this, and so are probably a lot of other people. Yep. And how is this potentially bad for their business going forward? And frankly, a harbinger of a slowdown that perhaps analysts are not taking into account. Right. So I think it's a, it's a little bit hard to know exactly what the impact is going to be. But you can imagine there are people like me who have iPhones that are two or three years old who would be perfectly happy to pay $30 to get a new battery that might perk up the processing power on those phones and in some ways in, in many cases make them feel almost like new and if that's a good alternative to buying a new iphone at 700 or a thousand dollars i gladly pay 30 dollars for a shot at getting a like new sort of iphone and so the question is how much does that affect sales of new iPhones at a time when the entire smartphone industry is having these problems with growth. This is not just an Apple problem. Certainly Apple is not immune that the sales of new iPhones um, have slowed almost to a crawl at a point when f many people have phones and they're good enough and we're holding on to them for longer and longer. 
What do you think the value of the Apple brand is? I mean, it's an incredibly valuable brand. If you look at those rankings of, um, what, do you, what do you call them? Kind right. of consumer brand preferences. Mm-hmm. Apple is at the top or near the top in almost every country in which it operates. Okay. So by doing this, do you think that they've enhanced the brand? Well, look, I mean, I think they might have done the brand damage by not being forthcoming about this change they made in the software to slow down phones with older batteries. You know, the company had an opportunity for a year to talk about this publicly, and instead it allowed this flourishing of conspiracy theories that Apple intentionally slowed down older phones to prod people to buy new ones. And it turns out there's, I mean, the motivation was maybe not true, but there was a shred of truth in those conspiracy conspiracy theories. Okay, but you don't believe that by lowering the price of replacement batteries to solve this problem you don't think that that has enhanced the brand and the loyalty of customers to apple yeah i that's a good question i mean look it's it's a trade-off you know anyone right? throwing away their apple phones no, just because they're in no. a fit but i think i want to point out that that pim is actually clutching clutching his, his iPhone, iphone as we talk which i think is actually older than five years but be is that, that as a 5c it may. yes wow um my point being that one. apple plays for the long haul Yes, and I, the I think loyalty that's right. of customers. Yes, I think is something that Apple understands almost uh, intrinsically. It's part of their DNA. So they did bur- the brand damage, uh, and now they're doing some brand burnishing. And I don't know what the ultimate, you know, trade off is. But there's a larger point here, which is if people are prolonging the cycle with which they own phones. What does that do to the future of smartphone makers that have gotten used to minting cash? And I guess that that my question is, let's say growth does stagnate here. What's the outlook for Apple? I mean, they're still minting cash. Look, to me, the existential threat for companies like Apple is the changes we've seen in consumer buying behavior of smartphones. Again, our phones are really good. We rely on them a lot. But we're not buying new ones, at at least in countries like the U.S. and in Europe. We're not buying new ones at the rate that we used to. If you look at the average time period between new smartphone purchases, it used to be something like once every two years in the United States. And now it's more like three years plus. Right. And that has a huge impact on sales numbers. Right. If we're holding on to our new phones, that reduces the number of new phones sold every year. And that is, again... That is a big headwind for companies like Apple that I just I don't think they can overcome what seems like a permanent shift in buying behavior. Three hundred million dollars in a day. Doesn't that make you question this thesis? It, it does not. New Year's um, Day, three hundred million dollars. Yes, you're talking sales, about Apple, right, Apple disclosed yeah. that uh, New Year's Day sales of um, things from the App Store was three hundred million dollars. So I'll, I'll point out a couple things. One is and I'm going to give you 10 seconds. Sorry. Um, the, the rate of growth in the app store is slowing down significantly. It was something like 30 plus percent in 2017 and 40 plus percent in 2016. And if Apple, Apple wants that number to go in the other direction, up right. rather than down. I love can, being set straight by, I love <laughs> being set straight by Shira Oviday, our gadfly columnist for all things technology. Always read her columns.
Right now, I want to get a um, an on-the-ground version of what's going on in the jobs market. And really, there's no one better to do that than Tom Gimbel, founder and chief executive of LaSalle Network in Chicago. LaSalle is one of the uh, leading staffing and recruiting firms in the country. And Tom, I'd love to get your sense of what's happening under the numbers. I mean, it seems like we are reaching a full capacity here, a full jobs market, full employment. Um, we are not seeing the wage growth that people would like to see. Is it really so good or are the numbers masking some sort of uh, broader weakness that isn't being accounted for? No, the numbers are really good. This is the best economy that we've seen in 25 years, uh, probably longer than that. I've been in the market for 25 years. Um, we're seeing that, you know, unemployment, acceptable unemployment rate is between two and two and a half percent historically. So as we, as we scoot under 4%, then you're, you're getting a little bit close to that. What you're going to have is, you know, it's an interesting situation where baby boomers are retiring. You have more millennials entering the workforce. Um, what'll really be interesting to see is, um, jobs are affected if this infrastructure bill gets passed and we're going to have more people throwing hammers. Are we going to have the people to do that in addition to the white collar? And I think too often we look at immigration as uh, people crossing the border from Mexico to America for um, blue collar and trade jobs versus people coming here for white collar education and staying here and, and some of the technology and innovation and, and some of those immigration situations. So there's really across the board, but the numbers aren't lying. The economy's great and and people should embrace it while, it while it's here. Okay, you said while it's here. Do you see any signs or based on your experience, how long can something like this last? I'm I'm very confident that that based on you know while, while no one loves the tweets and the communication that might come out of D.C. Um, the the lack of pending regulation, the changes at the NLRB, the tax overhaul, I see this thing going for another two years. Uh, there's no reason to think that that it should end if we can get interest rates uh, a couple bumps this year, two or three bumps this year. I think we're in a pretty good place. Tom, which industries are benefiting the most, or I should say the workers in which industries are benefiting the most and which are being left behind right now? Yeah, I don't know if any any working class is getting left behind. I think what we have in America is there's pockets of population, meaning what's going on in New York or San Francisco may not be the same that's going on in in Omaha or 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 you know Madison, Wisconsin. But the, across the board, whether it's technology or sales, healthcare, finance, companies are are hiring and growing. What we're seeing, and it's really interesting, and why wage growth isn't hiring or isn't increasing, is because because now small and medium-sized companies can also offshore business that 20 years ago was really just a, a big Fortune 1000 type of, of, of option. And so we're not competing against just our neighbors for, for jobs and, and more money. We're competing globally. So as that changes, now what we will see towards the end of 2018 and, and 2019, I predict, is we'll start to see wage increase because the municipalities that have increased a higher minimum wage, that'll affect the service sector and the hospitality jobs. And you'll start to see wage uh, increase from those because those jobs obviously can't be offshored. Well, with those wage increases, uh, will you see employers trying to find less costly ways to advance their businesses? Well, what, we'll, what we'll probably see is more automation. So when you have the kiosks that have appeared in some McDonald's and other fast food chains that are trying to um, 
automate and, and, and quite frankly, save money and make things more efficient for the consumer, if those can continue to grow with their level of sophistication and the consumer doesn't suffer, you will see that the the wages may increase in the service sector and hospitality sector, but um, you won't see as many jobs in that. So it really is. We're at an interesting intersection. But as you said to open the, the segment, is that with unemployment creeping down from, from 4.14%, if that continues in 2018, we're going to see that the, the, worker, the workforce isn't in an abundance anyway. So it's really more the participation rate. Tom, have you been crazy busy and do you expect a, an even busier 2018? The fourth quarter was the best quarter I've had in 25 years, and we've grown every single year for, for 20 years that I've had the company. So, yeah, it's been, it's been great. I, I see things. I know I'm a little bit, sound a little bullish and a little, little happy, happy pill focused this morning, but uh, it, it, is, it has been really good both in the Midwest and we do work around the country. And uh, companies and CEOs have confidence in the economy and they're hiring. Thanks very much for being with us, Tom. Gimbel is the chief executive of LaSalle Networks. And uh, very interesting uh, comments, as you said, from the ground up, right? This is not big macro numbers. This is actually filling jobs in accounting, finance, call centers, executive search, healthcare, and so on. Yeah. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Tim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. Well, we all want cheaper drugs, and the U.S. has been trying to approve generic drugs at a faster clip to expedite some of these uh, more cheaper drugs to the market. But they are hitting into a uh, pipeline issue. Here to talk about it is Anna Edney. She's a health policy and FDA reporter for Bloomberg News. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Can you explain? Explain how drugs get to market in the U.S. and why this is a, a huge factor in the FDA's ability to expedite genetic, uh, generic drugs. Sure. So in um, in the U.S., a lot of the drugs that we take are generic, and and many of those forty percent are coming from India. So it's either um, drug makers that are based there, um, that are large generic drug makers, or there are even bigger, sort of more well-established drug makers that we might know of that are in the U.S. or in Europe. Many of them have manufacturing plants that are based in India um, because that helps them bring down the cost of manufacturing their drugs. The issue that, you know, we're seeing is... um, for you know, the FDA has been trying to increase oversight there because there are just so many issues cropping up with um, you know the the testing that happens when they're manufacturing these drugs. They need to check and make sure that the drugs are you know still safe and that they have as much active ingredient as they should. Basically, that they're going to work the same as a brand name drug. Um, that they're copying. And a lot of times the FDA is finding in India, the companies are deleting testing data if it isn't desirable. So if they fail some of those testing, or if it looks like a drug is going to fail that testing, the the, t- the results will just sort of vanish or be invalidated in some way. They might abort the test. Um, so what the FDA is getting from them on the quality of their drugs might not exactly be accurate. 
Anna, Dr. Reddy's Laboratories. It's got a plant in Andhra Pradesh, and I want you to explain what happened in March of 2017. The FDA was doing an inspection there, so there were two agency inspectors that went to this this plant, um, and they were they go into the computers a lot of times, sort of like computer forensic experts, essentially, um, to try and and look and see, you know, what the analysts there working on this testing have been doing. What they found were what looked like, you know, deleted documents. They didn't find the documents, but they found sort of a trail that, you know, the documents were gone. So there were, you know, you open up Microsoft Word, there's your file of recent files. They looked at that file and when they clicked on those documents, they weren't there anymore. So they obviously had very recently been deleted from that computer. They asked the employees, um, you know, if they had been, if they had deleted them, they said no. They asked them again, they said no. And this is from me reading the inspection report. They finally asked them a third time. Um, so they pressed them on this and they admitted, yes, they had deleted these files. They couldn't remember why. Okay. So Anna, there is a big question of uh, the uh the accuracy of some of the testing and the production that's coming out of India, which supplies about 40% of the generic drugs that Americans take. Um, what, what's the outcome here? If the FDA is trying to expedite generic approvals to lower drug costs, uh, if they are uh, approving these at a faster clip, and yet it sounds like, especially reading your story, they don't have the boots on the ground in India to oversee some of these plants. Does that mean that drugs are making their way to the U.S. that are not safe? Does it mean that it's going to slow down the process of generic drugs that are approved getting to the market? What's the implication here? I think it raises a lot of questions about whether those drugs are safe that are coming to market here from India. The companies um, that I mentioned in the stories and that I contacted all said, you know, they are working on these issues. The FDA hasn't gone as far as to ban their products, which the FDA can do if they find significant problems. Um, and so they say that, you know, that basically means that the FDA thinks they're still safe enough to come here. They're just you know, keeping an eye on these manufacturing issues that they need to clean up um, before the FDA kind of gives them, a, you know, the green light that right. that everything's okay. So uh, I'm just wondering, I mean, is FDA sort of the first and last stop to oversee these factories or uh, are distributors, the, the big pharmaceutical distributors or, uh, you know, the, the actual companies that came up with the drugs, are they the ones that, that could potentially have some oversight over this? The FDA is, um, is you know, considers itself the the authority to be able to you know investigate inspect these companies but they do put the the onus on the companies themselves to ensure that their products are safe um, and so the sort of the buck stops there there is a sort of a thing in in Europe um, a lot of the drugs have to have testing before they cross the border um, into those countries the US does not have that so you know there isn't sort of that check, um, the final check where you might be testing those products at that point.
Thank you very much, Anna Edney. Very important story. And just to note that uh, Dr. Reddy Laboratories had declined to comment for the story. Anna Edwards, our Edna, our um, healthcare policy reporter for Bloomberg News, talking about uh, generic drugs made in uh, factories that may not get the greatest kind of oversight. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.